Um, I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of our gospel this morning. Gospel comes from Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to talk for a few minutes about reputations. Uh, Reputations are important. They're significant. They're a significant part of our lives. Reputations are especially significant if you're a business owner, right? If you own a business or you're starting a business, what how people perceive you and how people perceive that business is really, really important. It used to be if we had an experience with a business that was a negative experience, the only thing we really could do was report them to the Better Business Bureau, right? Or tell our friends or something like that. Today, if you have a bad experience with a business, you can go to Yelp or to Urban Spoon or go online really quickly. And a lot of businesses can start and they can go out of business really quickly because their online reputation changes so drastically. Reputations can be really fickle. They can go back and forth. We see this with public figures as well. So uh, uh, there's a, a fellow named LeBron James. Anybody ever heard of him? Okay, a few of us. This last summer, something really interesting happened. So LeBron James, many people say, is the best basketball player in the world. I know we're in Oklahoma. There's a man named Kevin Durant that would have something to say about that. But um, LeBron James, many people think, is the best basketball player in the world. He was drafted in 2003 out of high school to his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, He went, played for them for several years, kind of rose in the ranks, took his team to the NBA Finals, but never quite got over the hump to win a championship. Um, And then in 2010, something interesting happened. LeBron James became a free agent. He was able to choose any basketball team in the world or in the country or in the NBA that he wanted to choose and he wanted to play for. So he took out an hour of primetime television and he told the world the now infamous words, I am taking my talents to South Beach. Right? I'm joining the Miami Heat. He went from this small market hometown team to the Miami Heat, this big kind of flashy group. And immediately he became one of the most hated athletes in the world. Actually, he topped the list at one point of the most hated athlete in the world. And that includes those that married the Kardashians. So that's a big, <laughs> a big deal, right? So then that all changed in 2010. Or in this last summer, 2014, this last summer, he's a free agent again. And instead of taking out an hour of primetime television space, he writes a tear jerking letter that makes you cry. Well, makes me cry. It's, it's, it was a very heartwarming letter about how he wanted to mentor kids in Cleveland. He wants to serve the city and immediately his reputation changes from being a villain to now being a hero. It changes almost overnight. We're often obsessed with reputation in our culture. We already said that it's an important part of life, but 
We can become obsessed with it. We can think constantly about what are people thinking about us? What, are, what does my online kind of profile say about me? Are people liking it? Are they, are they my Twitter followers? All these kind of things can become an obsession. We see that there's one time in the Gospels, this passage that we just read, where Jesus asks about his own reputation. And he's not asking out of insecurity or fear or of worry, but he's genuinely interested in the spiritual climate around him. Who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me or saying about my mission? So he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What is the consensus among people? And he kind of asked it in a roundabout way. He says, who do people say the son of man is? Which is kind of in Greek is kind of strange. It's almost like he's saying, this guy here, who do people say this guy here is? So it's a really kind of odd way of phrasing it. Who do people say that I am? At this time in the first century, the Jewish people were under the thumb of pagan oppressors. They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And what that meant is even though they were able to practice their own religion at that time, at the end of the day, they had to proclaim that Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire, the emperor, was Lord and God. He had the final authority. You could do all this other stuff. You could practice your religion, worship in the temple. But at the end of the day, you had to say under threat of violence that Caesar was Lord and God. Now, throughout Jewish history, the history of the people of Israel, there existed prophets They were prophets, and their goal was to call people back in line with the story of God's people. So people got out out of line. Sometimes harshly, they would call them back to their identity. They would say, remember who you are. Remember the law. Remember your mission. Remember who you're called to be. These prophets were seen as wild and sometimes crazy and sometimes harsh. But that was their goal, was to call people back in line with their story. Side by side with this there existed a belief that one day there would be a figure who would be greater than all the prophets. He would, in fact, be more of a king than a prophet. He would be the Messiah. And he would come, and the Messiah would actually bring in a new authority, a new reign. He would put things back together. He'd put things back in order. He'd set the children of Israel free. So the disciples say to Jesus that people think, the consensus among people is, that you're a prophet, And you're a really great prophet. You're a lot like John the Baptist. Some people think you're like John the Baptist or you're like Elijah or one of these wild prophets of old. They're saying, though, that Jesus is a significant prophet. The reason why they say this is because he's speaking truth to power. He's calling people back into who they're called to be. He's an advocate for the poor, for the marginalized, for the oppressed. And he does it in a way that no one else had ever done. But Jesus is more than one of the prophets. There's another layer. There's another element to the life of Jesus. So Jesus takes this big question, who do people say that I am? What's my reputation? And he zooms in. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter says here, seemingly without hesitation, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, this was revolutionary at this time. If, if Jesus was the Messiah, it meant that all other powers, all other authorities, anything else that claimed reign and rule over the world had to watch their back. If the Messiah was here, if Jesus had arrived as the Messiah on the scene, the world is now a different place. A new day has dawned. The ground is shifting under our feet. The word Messiah just simply means God's anointed that Jesus was the messenger sent, God's anointed to sent to change and heal the world. 
The term son of God meant specifically God's messenger, that he was sent by God, not in a roundabout way, but sent by God directly. Now, after the resurrection, we actually see a third layer. So we see this first one, that he's a prophet. We see the second one, he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And then we see after the resurrection and in early church history, people start to realize, actually, he is God in the flesh. There's a deeper layer. But at this time, this claim is so significant. It's so life-altering. It's so world-changing. You are God's representative. You are here to bring about a new world. In fact, Peter's claim is so significant that Jesus says, if you're willing to declare this thing that only God could have told you, you need a new name. Your name has to change. This is so significant. Your identity has now changed. Everything has changed. Jesus says, what matters is who you say that I am. And that answer changes everything. For us, it changes everything because it's a profound question because who we say Jesus is changes our identity. It changes who we are. This statement for Peter was so significant, it required a new name. In ancient times, names were really important. Today, when we name a child, we, we name them something that sounds good, hopefully. We can find a good meaning in some culture or in some tradition that we can tie to it, and, and we attach that. But in ancient times, names were almost like kind of prophetic words spoken into someone that said, this is what you're going to live into. This is who you're going to be. Everything else now must, must take a back seat. So the Aramaic um, here is Cephas. Uh, we translate it Peter. But the word here, the name here is rock. Peter will be this rock. When we choose to cling to Christ, we take on a new identity, a new name. It's significant. And actually, it's an exclusive new identity. So what that means is that means all the other things that have formed who we are have to now take second place or have to take a back seat. Our baptismal identity, who we are in Christ, is now primary. In the church, when we baptize people, we do a couple different things. It's, it's important. The first thing is we have them renounce something. They renounce Satan and evil, all that they were before, all of Satan's works. They renounce that. That doesn't mean after you're baptized, you never sin again. Uh, there will be times where those other counterfeits will raise their ugly head. There will be those things in our lives. But we say, no, I'm taking on something new. I'm renouncing this thing. I'm laying it beside. The second thing that we do is not only do we give up something, but we take on something. We take on a new identity. We say, I now have a baptismal identity that I cling to, and that is now my primary identity. There are a lot of things in our world today that, that clamor to form our identity, that try to shape who we are. And these are just a few examples. But the first one we might say is consumerism. Consumerism says that you are who you are because of what you buy. Whatever it is that you, you buy in life, that is who you are. That's what identifies you. That's what shapes you, whether it be a type of house, whether it be um, certain clothes, anything like that. Have you ever been to, have you ever been, have you been to a shopping mall lately, right? If you go to a shopping mall, you'll notice everything in there is trying to form you. It's trying to shape you. The advertisements are trying to get to the core of who you are, to reach something and say, you can be something different if you purchase this. If you purchase these clothes, that will give you this new identity. As parents, we go and we go, if you purchase this for your child, you will be a better parent and you will have a better life if you do this, right? There are things that are clamoring to form and shape us. 
The problem with the narrative of consumerism is that it's hollow. There's nothing at the end of it. Clothes wear out and they go out of style. The new car smell goes away, unfortunately. I hate to break it to you if you just bought a new car. It does, right? That, that those things are empty at the end of themselves. Another uh, narrative that seeks to form us is uh, the narrative of experience or experiences. And this is a tricky one because many of us who try to reject the narrative of consumerism, we take on this one in its place. The narrative of experience says that life is all about new experiences. It's all about adventure. If I can accumulate a bunch of great experiences and collect them and perfectly filter them on Instagram, then that will shape and form who I am. That's what life is about. Now, there's nothing wrong with new experiences. God can use those in amazing ways. God gives us beautiful experiences. But when our craving is only for new experiences, when that becomes our primary identity is this adventure, these experiences we have, we often forget what's right in front of us, that God is in the everyday, in the mundane, even the normal things of life. So we talked about consumerism, which has to do with stuff, we talked about experience, has to do with new experiences in our life. Another thing that can clamor to shape and form our identity are specific ideologies or philosophies. Um, we can define ourselves by how conservative we are or how progressive we are. That can be our primary identity. We can allow our political or denominational lens to be what defines us and how we see the world then often everything else in our lives has to kind of come in line with that if that becomes our primary identity. The problem with this is that the good news of Jesus shatters and goes beyond all of our contemporary ideologies. It does. It challenges all of them. It pushes them. There's nothing wrong with holding particular positions or certain ideologies on things. But when that becomes our primary identity above our baptismal identity, we get into trouble. If Jesus was Lord, it means it meant at that time that Caesar was not. Okay, so all the other authorities that clamor to shape identity are not. Caesar now has to take a back seat. It's the same in our lives. Jesus, for us, if Jesus is just a great prophet or a moral example or an inspirational figure, we can still have other things that form and shape our identity when they become primary. But if Jesus is Lord, everything else is not. Everything else is at least second. This uh, forming and shaping of identity is based on trust. When Peter answers the question, Jesus tells him, you could not have arrived at this answer on your own. This is only because of God. Now, God chooses to use people in profound ways and use the church in profound ways. Amazing things happen in our world. Beautiful things happen in our world. But where we get into trouble is when we begin to think that that's all about us, that it's about our ingenuity, our creativity, our brilliance, or anything like that. Everything goes back to him. It is because of him that, God, that, that any, these good things happen in the world. On the flip side, we also have a lot of terrible things that are going on in our world right now. 
As we looked at this story unfold in Ferguson, Missouri, way too close and, 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 and difficult and challenging and messy. And we saw the atrocities that happened and the church began to look at it and go, what is happening? Um, we're about, the spirit is about bringing people together and people are being torn apart and violence is happening here. Um, as we look at these wars that we're fighting and potential wars that we could be fighting and we see it's messy and it's broken and it doesn't make sense and I don't have a box and I can't come up with an easy answer for all of these things. Often we get to the end of ourselves, which is actually a good place to get to. When we go, I don't have answers. I have to cling to my faith in Christ. I have to trust that he is at work somewhere and look for those places. I even think this is a more superficial example, but do you remember a few weeks ago when everybody was doing this um, ALS bucket challenge? How many of you remember that, right? Okay, four of us. Um, okay, hopefully more of us, um, or this illustration will not work at all. Um, but, but when that was happening, it was interesting because you started to see, you know, like on social media and different places, your feed just kind of blows up, right? There's all these people that are doing this, this kind of thing. And it's great raising awareness for something, raising money for something. And then there's all these blog posts and news articles that come out saying why you shouldn't do the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. And people are saying that maybe not all the money goes to research Research, some people water conservation or, you know, different things like that. And, and, and these things start to happen. And I don't want to downplay those because, you know, there may be something to it. But, but I look at it and I go, wow, even this fun thing that was supposed to be like good hearted and for a good cause, even that is like messy. It's gray. It's not black and white. We come to the end of ourselves and we go, at some point, um, we can't figure everything out. At some point, we come to the end of ourselves. Um, we're talking about tragedies around the world and even near, near to us. Um, I think about these words from, I was a big Mr. Rogers neighborhood fan growing up. And I don't know if you were, if you know the story of Fred Rogers, he actually was a Presbyterian minister. And I remember this quote got cycled around during the time of the Boston marathon massacre that happened. And Fred Rogers said this, when I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I'm always comforted by realizing there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. There is so much that the church can say about equality, about peace, about prejudice, about war, about all the brokenness, and we should say these things. But we always need to remember that it's not our creativity or our ingenuity or what we can come up with the final answer. We always have to be desperately clinging to the person of Christ and to this new community that is forming in the world. Perhaps our question should be, even in the midst of gray and complexity and things that don't always make sense, where is God working, even in small places, and how can I jump in? Where are the helpers? Where are these things happening, and how can I participate by God's Spirit? No matter how bad the tragedy, no matter how complex it is, God is working somewhere, and we are called to join him. Our passage tells us that whatever we do, even here, our ability to recognize Jesus as Lord and God is not because of us. The affirmation that Jesus Christ is Lord does not just come through logical means. My identity in Christ is not because of my great achievement. It's because he's revealed himself to me. 
And we need to be clear here. This wasn't that Peter received some divine revelation that was like kind of this secret knowledge that nobody else had. Peter was like separate than everybody else and he was part of the good group and there's a bad group and he got divine revelation and they didn't know. Peter, this was revealed to Peter about who Jesus was because Peter took the step of obedience to be a disciple and to walk in the way of discipleship. Sometimes there are going to be things in our life that we don't have this whole faith thing figured out. There are going to be some times where we have significant doubt, and that's part of the Christian story. And often our call in those places is to begin to take that first step of obedience and discipleship. And when we take that step, there are some things that are only revealed to us as we begin to walk the path of discipleship. I tell people if they're struggling, they go, hey, I want to I be a Christian. I want to be a follower of Jesus. But there's a bunch of things that I really doubt. I'm drawn by the beauty of this story, but there's a bunch of things I just don't have figured out yet. I just say, join the club. There's a bunch of things I don't have figured out yet either. But we have taken this step, and there are some things that as we go along the journey are revealed to us little by little. There are a lot of things about Jesus we only begin to see when we follow him. But when we trust our lives to Christ, when we seek for our identity to be formed by Christ, some interesting things happen. We begin to do some things that don't seem to make sense. We begin to love people and give in ways that don't always make logical sense. My little brother, Spencer, moved out to Nashville about four months uh, after us. And uh, he's a bass player. And he was looking online for um, just kind of bass forums, like on Facebook or on Craigslist and bass players and gigs and all that kind of stuff. And he came across a really interesting post from a bass player who was a professional. And he said something really awful had happened to him. His bass was stolen his livelihood, you know, how he made a living was stolen and he didn't know what to do. And he's just asking desperately, like, can I buy a base? Can I, you know, what, what can I do here quickly? I have a gig, you know, coming up really quick. And my brother did something that didn't make a whole lot of logical sense. He called the guy and he said, you can borrow my base as long as you need it. Now, if you're a musician, you know how crazy this is. You don't call Craigslist guy and say, here you go, right? Like, like that's, that's not a really wise thing to do. You say that's not really smart. But something in him compelled him to do that. There was something I believe was the spirit of God that compelled him to go beyond even what logic would say and to love in this profound way. It opened some great doors of relationship and conversation. You will find when you, when you root your identity in Christ, you will do things that don't make sense. You will look for peace and reconciliation in your relationships instead of revenge. There will be some things that go beyond. And I'm not saying that we turn our brain off. Logic, reason, common sense all have a role in the Christian faith. All are important. But there will be times when you are called to go beyond yourself and do something you wouldn't ordinarily do. We felt this about church planting. Um, we love, we love Tulsa. We love sanctuary. We loved what we were doing here. Ashley and I both had full-time jobs, you know, really great about kind of life and what we were doing here. And yet something compelled us that we were supposed to do this. We felt that call and we felt like we're supposed to do something. It doesn't make full logical sense, but we took that step. There will be things in life that challenge you to go beyond. Now it's interesting, this Peter guy who, um, Jesus says he will build his church on him is the same guy who will eventually deny Jesus three times. God calls imperfect people, people who mess up, 
The disciples are great examples of this. Ordinarily in a culture, in this culture, if you were a rabbi, if you were a teacher at this time, and you wanted to call disciples, you would call those who were the best of the best of the best. So those that had gone through school and had had kind of the best achievement in school, you would say, come and follow me and learn to be like me. Walk in my dust, walk in the dust of me as a rabbi. And then eventually they would say, you can become like me. Jesus is totally different than these other rabbis in that instead of choosing the best of the best of the best, he goes and finds the poor the broken, those on the margins of society. And he says, follow me. And then he says, you can be like me. Wow, this is totally different. It is totally upside down. Jesus didn't choose the best of the best. The only thing that bound them together, that bound the disciples together, the only thing is that they believed in him, that they believed that Jesus was bringing about a new world. That's it. I don't know if you've heard this, but it's been popular for people to say that Jesus came to build a kingdom, but the disciples messed it up and built a church, right? But we see throughout scripture that Jesus is constantly calling together a community, a specific community. I run into this all the time, and maybe you do, people who say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the institutional church. Have you heard that before? It's a very common thing to say. And we need to empathize with these people because a lot of that comes out of significant hurt in their lives, significant pain. And so we need to listen to that and empathize to that. But one of the things that's so powerful about this kingdom movement is that being imperfect and the church being imperfect is not what disqualifies us from participating in God's kingdom. It's actually what qualifies us. He calls people who are completely dependent on their faith in Christ and not on themselves. And that often looks messy. Jesus says, on this dependence, on this trust, on this faith, I will build my church. Jesus calls together this new community that is only bound together by their trust in him. This idea of a kingdom built on a rock was not new language for the Jewish people. The temple was built on a rock, on a mountain. The temple was the center of Jewish faith and worship. It was God's house. And actually, the temple was a sign to all of the other pagan worshipers, all the, that worship pagan deities, that God lives here among his people. That actually, he's got a house in our neighborhood. That he is present with us. It proclaimed that significantly. God lives with us. And we see in the New Testament that Jesus is the new temple. He is the new place where heaven and earth meet. And he's saying he is calling a people around himself that will show the meeting of heaven and earth with their lives. And that they are this rock, this mountain, and it is connected to faith in him. Yet, Jesus says, this new community will face opposition, will always face opposition. The forces of Hades, the forces of hell will come against it. There will always be opposition to the kingdom of God and to Christian community. If you experience pain or hurt in the church, it's not only because the church is intentionally made up of imperfect people, but it's also because any time love, the love, the peace, the grace, and the transformation of God is happening, there will be resistance. There will always be something that comes against that. And in this, the disciples are not called to make the church safe to separate the church and kind of keep the church cloistered. It's a dangerous world. 
But instead, the call is to stay true to our mission and cling to our rock. This community will live God's kingdom of love in the world and will be part of putting everything right. And when we live that way, when we trust in Christ to form our identity, the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Lastly here, the final part of this passage talks about authority. Jesus says he will give this new community the keys of the kingdom. Somehow the authority that is from heaven comes with these keys and comes on these people. Now we make sometimes a lot of these keys to the kingdom languages in scripture. I don't know about you, but I grew up in churches where we talked a lot about authority, of the authority of the believer and the keys of the kingdom, the authority for prosperity and for healing. And that's not a bad thing to talk about. That's okay to talk about. But this authority idea and these keys of the kingdom must always be connected with the humility that comes in recognizing we are fully dependent on Christ. It's not about us. We've come to the end of ourselves and it is about him. But we look at what he says to these ragtag followers, these people who bumble and stumble and mess up. He says, I am giving you the keys to the kingdom. This community that Jesus is calling around himself, somehow they will run and drive this kingdom initiative in the world. This group of people, broken people, Anytime you hand your keys over to someone, there is a risk, right? Those of you who have had, I'm sure know this, who have had uh, parents uh, or are parents of teenagers who start driving, right? There's a big risk in handing over your keys and the authority that goes with that. Now, I don't have a 16-year-old. I have a 16-month-old, but she is still obsessed with keys, so it's always keys, keys, keys. So anytime we want to go somewhere, we'll say, let's go get in the car. And she'll say, keys, 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 keys. So we pull out our keys and we give them to her. The thing she hasn't figured out yet, she gets this idea and is fascinated with this idea that a key goes in a lock and it turns and it opens. She loves that and lights up every time. But what she doesn't get is there's a specific key that goes with a specific lock. So we'll give her the keys when we go out to the car and she goes to the first car in the parking lot and tries to put it in there, Right. But there's a risk when I let Lucy play with our keys. The risk is, and this has happened, that I will find them in her drawer or that I will find them in the recycle bin or that I'll find them inside the air conditioning unit, right? Those things happen. There's a risk and there's a panic. Where are my keys? Oh, I gave them to Lucy. Who knows where they are at this point, right? Sometimes I wonder when the church messes up over and over again, when we have dysfunction, when we're imperfect, when we're broken, when we do a lot of things in the name and by the authority of Jesus that don't make sense, there's times where I go, are you sure this was a wise decision to hand over the keys to us? Are you sure that this was a logical kind of thing to do? Maybe you should use something like monkeys or, you know, something else like that. Like, like why use us? Yet over and over again, God calls not only people, but specifically the church, this gathered community to live and to, to carry his authority in the world. Jesus goes even further than that. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. These are rabbinical terms in the first century. Binding meant to forbid something. Loosing meant to allow something. So he's saying that these things that you do on earth, like you have the authority of me as a rabbi in this. What you do, somehow you have the authority of heaven here. Somehow the things that the church does here on this earth has the authority of heaven behind it as we stay connected to our faith 
in Christ. God is building a new building, a place where heaven and earth meet. And the rock is this community that is connected to trust in Christ. We tell people at Sacrament, as uh, we have a lot of people who are pretty new to the Christian faith or haven't been part of the Christian faith for a long time. And, and when they come, we say that church can't just be another add-on to our lives. It can't be, I get my insurance from this place and I go to this gym and this is my church. It's one of, this is my favorite restaurant and this is my church. No, the church, because all those other places don't have the authority of heaven behind them. Right? The church is different. It's unique in that way. It's, it's powerful in that way. Sanctuary is one of those places where this building is being built, where this new community is being built. Somehow when we gather and when we worship, we're participating with the worship of heaven here. We have the authority of heaven behind us. When you live in community with one another, when you speak on behalf of the poor and the oppressed, when you take time to help someone in need, when you teach and raise a child, when you spend time with a person who's lonely, somehow you are part, as part of the church, you are part of this place where heaven and earth meet. The authority of heaven is behind you and goes with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your kingdom that is so beautiful and so amazing. Lord, we recognize that when your kingdom comes in and, and it has in the person of Jesus, that everything else that clamors to shape and form our identity has to take a back seat. It has to get behind us. But Lord, we also recognize that we choose counterfeits a lot. We get formed by a lot of other things. We get shaped by a lot of other things. So today we repent. We say we trust in you. Will you form us? Will you shape us? Thank you, Lord, that you called those of us, all of us, who are imperfect, who are broken, that you didn't just choose the best of the best, but that you called all of us. Lord, thank you that you embrace us, and then also you heal us and empower us to live these keys of the kingdom in your world. We trust you today. We are fully reliant on you today. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.